Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver Newsroom. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. We're on summer hiatus right now, but this is a replay of our interview with Perrin Beattie, the President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Now, we're about three months away from the federal election, closer even to the true campaigning, which is going to start, I think, later this summer. And while our economic conditions appear generally positive, there is no shortage of concern about the climate for investment and growth, or, or for that matter, worries about headwinds from other countries, including our largest trading partners in America and China. What does business want from this campaign? What are its key issues, and how does it wish the parties vying for government address its concerns? To explore this, I've moved up the food chain to talk to the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Perrin Beatty, was elected to the Commons at age 22. He became the youngest cabinet minister in our history. He moved from politics to become president of the CBC, although I don't think that's necessarily a move entirely out of politics, then into his relationship with business as president of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, only to move in 2007 to the chamber, where he's held this position now for a dozen years. And he joins me by phone now from Ottawa. Good to talk to you. Great to be here, Kurt. Thanks very much. Listen, what would you say in, in broad outline are the, the top of mind issues for business as we move into this campaign? It comes down to one issue, and that's the ability of Canadian business to compete in a global economy that is tougher than ever before and where the competition is getting more difficult every single day. Hmm. Well, how well are we doing? We're doing, under the circumstances, pretty well. Uh, If you look at some of the figures related to unemployment in Canada, for example, uh, that's very encouraging. But below all of this, there's a fragility that you hear about when you travel across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole question of, for business, where am I going to make that investment? When I'm opening up the next plant, is it going to be in Canada or will it be somewhere else where I can do better? And the real worry that I have is that we're seeing competition growing. It's becoming more fierce. And that certainly includes competition for investment and for job creation between our country and others. Yeah. It, well, of course, there was a, a so-called regime change last election. It would, how transformative have conditions been in this term for the Liberals compared to what they were under the Conservatives? What, what would you say have been some of the key changes? I think many of the changes have been international. Uh, If you take a look, for example, about our bilateral relationship with the U.S., uh, I was a member of the government that brought in the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, and it was simply an article of faith for us, as it was for uh, politicians of all political parties for generations, that there would never be a time when Canada's interests and the interests of the United States would diverge to the point that one of the partners would attempt to do damage to another. Hmm. Yet we saw President Trump doing exactly that, both with a series of actions that he took against Canadian businesses, including softwood lumber, which is a long-standing one, but uh, also uh, threats against the automotive sector, actions against Bombardier, actions uh, against Canadian steel and aluminum. And as a result, then, we don't have that capacity to take for granted that that, uh, our most important trading partner will always be there and always be open to us. So the big challenge for for the current government was the renegotiation of NAFTA, particularly up against a, an administration in the U.S. that was capricious and unpredictable and that had said that NAFTA was the worst trade agreement ever negotiated between two countries or three countries. But it, it's almost as if, though, our country measured its success on the basis of how little it lost. 
Well, and I think that's a that's a fair assessment. Um, we don't have NAFTA 2.0. The, the the great disappointment here is that we weren't able to dramatically modernize it, to extend the agreement, and to uh, make it even more effective. It was, you know, NAFTA was something that was a tremendous benefit for all three of our countries. And uh, there was an opportunity, however, to modernize it. For example, to look at the occupations that are listed in there that that allow people to move freely across the border mm-hmm. to be able to do business on both sides of the border. Um, these predate the internet. And it made eminent sense to modernize that but the Trump administration wasn't prepared to even look at that. So uh, we don't have NAFTA 2.0. It's more like NAFTA 0.8. Yes, exactly. Um, but it was an achievement in itself in that the alternative that we were looking at was not only the the uh, death of NAFTA, but the uh, implementation of a trade war between Canada and the United States, which would have done enormous damage for both countries. Yeah. And yet... You must uh, concede that perhaps we got a little dependent on the concept of a frictionless arrangement with the United States, or relatively frictionless arrangement. But what what do we now need to rethink in business around our our uh, situation with our largest trading partner? Well, you've you've put your finger on the the key element, and that's that um, we have so many eggs in that basket. About seventy five percent of our trade is being done with one customer. And if you had a, a store on any main street in any community in Canada, and there was one customer that was buying 75% of what, what you were selling, um, you would both give a lot of attention to that customer, but be concerned and make a priority of uh, developing new relationships with other customers. Hmm. We need to uh, spread our trading relationships. It's not a matter of doing less with the U.S. It's a matter of doing more with others. And we have to recognize that it's not simply a matter of, of good business. It's a matter of national security that we do so. Yeah. We can't afford to leave ourselves in the situation where in future, uh, either the current president of the United States or other ones can say simply, do what I want or I'll collapse your industries on you. Yeah. The situation with our next two largest trading partners, uh, China and Japan, uh, have gone in almost opposite directions, it, it seems at times, uh, during this liberal uh, uh, term. Uh, what do you make of where we are right now with China, which uh, out here in British Columbia, of course, is, is is a fairly large trading partner. We're much more diversified than the rest of the country. It, it's a very large trading partner, and it is one with the potential to be much larger. But all of this is dependent upon the bilateral relationship between our two countries, which is very strained at the present time and which has a potential for getting worse. Mm-hmm. We are forced, faced with a situation where the uh, government of China has literally Canadian hostages uh, in prison in China, uh, where it's taken action against Canadian exports to China, claiming uh, scientific or health reasons for doing so. But in fact, it's very clear that it's directly related to the political relationship between our two countries. Um, it means then that, that we need to manage this relationship closely. There's no question that we have to be engaged with China. We also have to recognize that uh, that China does not operate in the same way that, that many other countries do in terms of respect for international rules. And increasingly, what I'm hearing from our members is concerns, uh, first, uh, are they safe? 
yeah. uh, if they yeah. go to China? Is there a threat that, that China, for political reasons, could take action against them? Um, beyond that, uh, if they sign an agreement or if they're doing trade, can you find that capriciously that China, uh, simply as a matter of policy, decides that it wants to punish Canada or exercise leverage? Uh, this is not a good way to do business. And at the end of the day, it works directly against the interests of China itself. China must want to be seen by the rest of the world as a place where it's it's good to do business, where it's safe to invest, where the rule of law is respected. And unfortunately, in their dealings with Canada in uh, over the course of the last several months, uh, those factors have been put into question. No question that when Donald Trump was elected, president, he became rather bellicose almost instantly uh, with, with everybody else, and Canada included. But beneath Trump were a bunch of governors, a pile of businesses, a lot of other activity there that was still trying to support the arrangement that we had with the United States around trade. But is there the same infrastructure <laughs> in China, the, below the surface of the of the leadership that is rooting for us to make sure that we get our products safely and we do trade intelligently with that country? It's more fragile in the case of China and, and less developed. Um, mm. The simple fact is that that our relationship with the United States remains basically an easy one. Our, the rules of the game, for the most part, are the same on both sides of the border. We do business the same way. The rule of law applies. Uh, we know each other. We've done business with each other for uh, centuries. Um, it, it is a much easier relationship. In the case of China, it is still very much a relationship that's in an early stage of development. Uh, we have you know, a number of Canadian businesses that, that have established very good relations in China. Um, but for the vast majority of Canadian businesses, it's very much a frontier market. Hmm. Um, often, uh, they don't have local partners on the ground uh, they're uncertain about the rule of law in China, and they're uncertain about whether capricious change in government policy uh, would result in, in damage to the business relationship. So there's a wariness, uh, a desire certainly to to do more together, uh, but a wariness about whether or not uh, you can do business in the same way as you do with, say, for example, the European Union or the United States. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh in our relationship with China, and for that matter, in the United States, we we, we may not have gotten a version 2.0 of NAFTA, but we did get a version 2.0 of the Trans-Pacific Partnership during this term of the Liberal government. And and yet, you know, I have to say, as someone in media, I don't read a lot of media about um, about what might be uh, possible in the way of exploiting that relationship now with a big part, big trading block that includes our third largest partner. Japan. Absolutely. The, the great prize for Canada in this is, in essence, a free trade agreement with Japan, mm -hmm. but also with a number of other countries that are developing rapidly and which are important markets. And bizarrely, although the United States was the country that led in uh, the negotiations with regard to TPP, the current administration decided to pull out of it mm -hmm. and to leave Canada as a result with a first mover advantage here just as we have one with, with Europe. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, we're very fortunate to with have CETA. our CETA yeah. Yeah. agreement with Europe. In both of these instances, uh, Canada has a presence there that uh, our American colleagues don't. 
it means then that we should be taking advantage of that and developing business relationships and increasing the, the level of trade uh, in that that's a window that, that, that probably won't stay open indefinitely. Yeah. Uh, we have to anticipate. There's no question that American business would very much like to uh, to be members of the CPTPP and would like to have an American-European equivalent of um, CETA. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, whether this U.S. administration or subsequent ones, uh, those goals will likely be achieved. And that that first mover advantage that Canada has then will get closed. Um, we need to take advantage of it right now. Yeah. I don't want to go down the well too much with uh, with the CPTPP, but I, I do recall that Hillary Clinton herself was saying she was not going to be supportive of it. And, and Donald Trump uh, barely spoke about it, but I think the assumption was that he was not going to have much to do with it. Do you think that the climate has almost, well, at least for the time being, altered in the United States around the degree of protectionism it wishes for its markets? It has. Uh, certainly at the political level, we've seen the impact of that. The Republicans under Ronald Reagan in particular and under subsequent uh, Republican presidents had been the party of free trade. And they felt that it was very much in the interests of U.S. business and of the U.S. economy to take down uh, barriers between the United States and other countries. That's been entirely reversed now yeah. with President Trump referring to himself as the, you know, as the the tariffs president and uh, saying that tariffs are a wonderful thing that he loves and that that for some reason he seems to believe it's foreign countries that pay tariffs as opposed to uh, to, to American businesses and American consumers. But a, but a strange number of people believe him on that. That's that's it, and, yeah. and it is bizarre. It, it takes you back to the, to the days of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act back in <laughs> 1930. And I'm not. I'm not that was, old. I'm, listen, I'm not well, that old. No, nor are you. <laughs> it was well, and that's the danger. You know, it said that those who don't remember history are condemned to repeat it. Yeah. Um, exactly the same arguments were used in those days. Uh, in the U.S. Congress, that if we build a tariff wall around the United States, we'll benefit American business and we'll be able to to be much stronger and hire more people. Well, the very first country to retaliate against this was Canada. And although the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act didn't cause the Great Depression, it lengthened it and it deepened it. Mm-hmm. And the, the lesson that, that all countries that lived through it uh, learned was that the Tariffs don't strengthen your economy. They weaken it at the end of the day. And what they do is they slow down global growth and destroy your relationship with with uh, international customers. Um, the vast bulk of your customer base, ideally, is outside of your own country. Yeah. And uh, what you're hearing now is from an administration in the United States and from people who have completely forgotten the lessons of history and who... Uh, believe sort of 16th century mercantilist views about how economies should be run. Mm. They don't feel that trade per se is inherently good. They believe that it should be measured simply by uh, by subtracting exports from imports. If there are more exports, it's good. If there are more imports, it's bad. And that anybody who imports is somehow losing. Well, when a Canadian company buys a piece of software from a U.S. company that will make the Canadian company much more efficient and much more competitive. That's not a loss to Canadian business. That's a very good investment of uh, of Canadian money, even though uh, the transaction involves money going out of Canada. 
same happens the other way. We benefit from our from trade with other nations. And when impediments are put in the way, everybody loses. No question in this last generation, we've had um, a very appreciable uh, attention now over to um, the, the troubles of climate change. And, uh, and, and largely, of course, out here, we're really no stranger to this debate on climate change, the environment, its intersection with the resource industry. Broadly speaking, um, how do you think the parties are approaching this issue as we get toward an election? Are, are there plans viable? The concern that I have is that, that climate change is apt to be used during the election campaign more as a club to be used by each of the parties against the other than to stimulate a, a, an honest discussion and a frank discussion about what is it we need to do to achieve our, our um, Paris Agreement goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it stands today, uh, I don't believe that, that either of the major parties has a strategy that will achieve those goals. Hmm. And uh, yet, neither will be prepared to admit that. And what we do need to have is a, is a pretty frank and direct discussion with ourselves as Canadians on a mature level uh, about the seriousness of, of the seriousness of climate change. First of all, the need for us to act on it, and secondly, the need to do so in a way that's both effective and that doesn't impede our competitiveness as a country. So that if we simply uh, drive up the costs of doing business in Canada and have businesses shifting across the border into jurisdictions that have uh, uh, less stringent regulation. This does nothing for the for the global climate. What it what it does do is to do serious damage to the Canadian economy. So we need to ensure that that uh, any programs that we have in place to deal with climate change uh, don't undermine our competitiveness and that they're in fact effective in terms of achieving the goals that we want to achieve. This will not come without cost, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's an enormous cost of doing nothing as well. Climate change is real. It is damaging our economy and has enormous uh, potential to to damage the the health of millions of people around the world and and the well-being of of every human being. Notwithstanding what the parties are saying and and whether their plans are, are, are viable, I mean, do you actually think this is a needle that can be threaded? I believe it can, and I believe most Canadians believe that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the real challenge for us is to stop shouting at each other and actually have a discussion about, you know, what are the challenges we're facing? What should our priorities be in terms of addressing that? Uh, what is it we can do within Canada that will make the greatest impact without doing inflicting serious economic damage on ourselves? And how do we move ahead in a concerted way that that can sustain uh, that, that can be sustained longer than the life of one government? Yeah. Uh, the concern is if we continue to have policies that flip flop back and forth as administrations change at the federal and provincial level, it's very difficult for business to plan. Yeah. One other area that I want to touch on before our, our conversation concludes, Perrin, is uh, is the relationship that Justin Trudeau has identified as his most important, and that's, of course, uh, with, with our Indigenous people. Um, and no question we've seen uh, some progress during this term, and I'm sure your chamber has a lot to say about the uh, the ingredients that are necessary in order for us to have this, whether it's a nation-to-nation relationship or uh, an increased integration 
of, uh, of indigenous leaders and businesses in our economy. What are you looking for in this campaign that speaks to these issues? I think what we're looking for is a sincere commitment on the part of all of the parties to, first of all, to, to make it clear that, that we need to ensure that, that there is genuine reconciliation here. Mm-hmm. We can build bridges between the, between the communities. Um, secondly, we need much greater clarity. If I were looking at it from the perspective of the business community, we need to know that uh, what exactly the obligations are of governments and of the private sector, what's expected of each of us. We need to know that there's a partnership, that uh, in instances where the government falls down and where there may be a project that's being proposed with support of uh, an indigenous community and with the support of of business, and it's the government that hasn't done the consultations properly, that the other parties won't be injured as a result of this. Uh, In many instances, uh, although there's so much more to be done, in many instances, uh, the private sector has been more successful than government in terms of building productive relationships. If you look even in terms of, um, of procurement from indigenous businesses or the hiring of indigenous Canadians, uh, this is taking place far more extensively in the private sector than it is among government. Yes. This is, mm-hmm. and, and that's a good thing. We mm-hmm. need to do more of it. Um, but uh, this may be an instance where we're business is leading and the government is actually following and a much better dialogue among indigenous communities, government and businesses needed to ensure that we make better progress than we've made to date. Yeah. But you spoke, you know, in, in that answer about uh, the necessity for a little more clarity and predictability about all of this, because there's no question that it also involves uh, a significant sharing of the power dynamic here uh, than has than has taken place. Um, yes, it certainly does. Do, do, do you believe business is, is pretty much ready for this? I believe so. And, and that's a, there's been a tremendous shift that has taken place in, in recent years. Even when I first came to the Canadian Chamber uh, 12 years ago, when we would have our annual meetings, you'd get resolutions put forward at our, at our annual meeting, uh, making proposals with regard to the relationship with Indigenous communities. And what you'd get from the vast majority of delegates who were there, people saying, look, uh, I'm all in favor of our, our doing whatever needs to be done. But frankly, I don't understand the issues well enough to really have an informed opinion on this. Mm-hmm. That's very different from today where you're finding delegates from right across the country saying, uh, these are critical issues for us. They're ones in which we've made an effort to inform ourselves, in which we have an obligation to act and to provide leadership. And uh, uh, you, you see that as well among our uh, among corporate members, where businesses recognize that when you're doing business in indigenous communities, you don't just show up at the office and say, "Look, we want to build a pipeline across your property. Here's the checkbook. How much do you want?" Uh, indigenous communities are looking for a genuine partnership. They're wanting to know that that you're committed to them for the longer term, and that it's not simply a transactional relationship uh, the way that we might have with, with other groups. Um, as, as a consequence, increasingly, businesses are right at the front end when they're developing projects saying, um, look, indigenous communities must be involved in this and should be involved. Uh, how do we ensure that there's a genuine partnership? So this is something being done in partnership with them as opposed to something that's being done to them. 
Mm, right. Last question, uh, and and I'm going to tap into your political mind here. Uh, you've done you know a lot of work here uh, in our conversation and explaining what the top of mind issues are, but in your own mind, is there a sleeper issue that we might we might see here uh, as as it pertains to our economy in this campaign? Is there something you think that's lurking that we just maybe is about ready to to burst out? I think what there what there is when you when you talk to Canadians and particularly Canadian business people, there's an uneven easiness, um, a, a sense of the fragility uh, that, notwithstanding the fact that many of the figures that we've had have been very good, um, there's a sense that other countries are performing better than we are in Canada, and that certainly we're falling short of our of our potential. Um, any developments that that take place over the course of the next few months that suggest that that the economy is slowing down or uh, that next year will not be as good as this year could very well raise the focus on, on economic issues uh, and could raise very serious questions about uh, do the various parties have the solutions to the problems we're facing as Canadians. I think there's a, a genuine realism on the part of Canadians that, that we're facing more significant challenges than ever before. Um, that often the solutions to those challenges are not some sort of quick policy fix that will announce another program from government or pass a new law or, or write a check for something, but rather they're structural in nature. Do we have a 21st century workforce mm-hmm. uh, in Canada? Do we have the skills that we need to be able to be competitive? How is our border functioning? Uh, are we in a? Do we have the capacity looking at the west coast of Canada? Uh, have we set goals for ourselves for the share of global trade that should be passing through uh, through British Columbia ports? Uh, and have we followed through on that to say what sort of infrastructure do we need uh, and what other measures need to be taken to ensure that, that we can capture our, our fair share of, of global trade? Um, are we being strategic in terms of how we're looking at Canada's role in the world? And to me, the single most important issue the next government is going to have to address is this question of Canada's role in the world, right? Diplomatically, militarily, and uh, economically, um, we have to accept the fact that the post World War II order, in which Canada's uh, presence at so many tables uh, has depended upon up until now, has disappeared. Mm-hmm. The world doesn't does not look the way that it did even five or ten years ago. And any attempt to recreate that is going to fail. Uh, we have to recognize the fact this is a much more uncertain, much more multipolar, um, much uh, harder to govern world than the one that we've known during most of our lifetimes. And that, that Canada's uh, simple reliance that we had before on the relationship with the United States is no longer enough. We have to develop new relationships and look at what other countries have interests similar to ours. Uh, that believe in multi in multilateralism, that uh, uh, believe that international institutions have to be preserved, that believe in free enterprise, that are committed to democracy. And uh, we have to look to reinvigorate existing multilateral institutions, but also to look for uh, new institutions that will enable, enable us to uh, advance Canadian uh, interests globally. All right, but I'll try not to be cynical as we close. You, you listed about a dozen issues there. And I think it was Kim Campbell that talked about how an election campaign is no time to 
really look at issues. <laughs> do, you, do you still have any optimism left there? It's, it's, it's the challenge, and I am concerned about this election campaign. Um, the polls are showing that it's pretty tight right now, and we're apt to see a, a highly polarized election. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the Canadian Chamber is working hard now to, to focus on what do we do the day after the election. We're reaching out to political parties to make suggestions to them as to what should be on the agenda both during the election and after. Uh, we want to work with the public service who are preparing the briefing books that will go to uh, to whoever forms the next government, to ministers who are looking at their departments. Um, and we want also to work with others in terms of defining a public debate on what are the challenges and opportunities that Canada faces at, at this point in our national life. And uh, how do we identify uh, the solutions that can help to ensure Canadian success? Yeah. Well, it's been a great conversation, great, a great half hour to spend with you. I really thank you for your time today, Perrin. Thank you for having me. Perrin Beattie is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. You've been listening to BIV Today. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time. 